a moment of beautiful destruction. Saluted by both player and spectators alike. Welcome into the Club and Country podcast. Thanks to ESPN for the highlight. We'll explain why in just a minute. You heard it. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. This is the podcast of record for anyone who wants to follow the club courtesy of two people who've covered that club longer than anyone in the respective disciplines. And I am Nashville SE Radio Voice West Bowling. Glad to be back on the mic, Tim. And I am Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of ClubCountryUSA.com. But everybody who's who's been here the last two weeks already knew that. So, Wes, I'm just having to inform you a little bit. <laughs> and those of you who signed on in the new year might be like, who's this guy? Who's this obnoxious <laughs> guy? I was used to Braden. Seriously, thank you guys for holding down the fort. Thanks to everybody who sent their support, by the way, via pictures of Smokey on Twitter. It was a little disconcerting because I hadn't heard the show yet. I was like, why, why are people doing this? I don't really know, but... I'm a, I'm a UT Vol, so I, I, I didn't question it too hard. Yeah. You, you um, had no complaints. You were just confused. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we did have a death in the family that, that took me out of town for a couple of weeks. It was on my wife's side and just providing support, and it sucked. It was thing, those things are hard. So it was great to know that this show was in good hands. I've listened to every minute, nearly every minute. No, I think I think every minute at this point of, of you guys uh, over the past two weeks. Loved the Tom Bogart interview. Did an awesome job holding it down. Um, and I'm glad I wasn't fired when I walked back in the door. <laughs> uh, it was tempting for a minute, but we're, we're glad to have you back and, and uh, glad to have you back on the side of the border and, and hope all is well uh, with your wife's family as well. Thank you. Really, really appreciate that. Um, I'll tell you what, hours after this podcast hits your favorite platform out there, friends, Nashville SC finally plays its first preseason friendly. It's going to take place against Charlotte FC. Uh, if you're listening Tuesday, it'll be this afternoon, 12 Eastern. Um, what's on the preseason priority list now as the season looms less than three weeks away? We're going to discuss that today. But Tim, we alluded to it a minute ago. People probably wondering why we played that ESPN clip at the start of the show. Yeah, I mean, surely, surely you put that in there in honor of Nashville SC's two ESPN games that are on the <laughs> schedule so far. Uh, this summer and definitely not because one of the most recognizable voices in this sport on either side of the pond is our guest this week. You might call him a championship winning voice <laughs> if you wanted. John Champion, the lead MLS commentator for ESPN, joins us this week. And uh, we have a fantastic discussion of lots of, of NSC breakdown, but also talking about his background in broadcast how he brings his global perspective, having called World Cups and Champions League matches, etc., to this side of the pond, and uh, it was really a fun, a fun chat, Tim. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really good time. You can come for the MLS analysis and stay for a little lighthearted ribbing of, of Nashville SC TV announcer Tony Husband, who was John's <laughs> colleague uh, when both of those guys worked for the BBC. Yeah, can't really be too mean to Tony since he was the one who helped us set this thing up. Um, I guess, um, but we'll still we'll still find our opportunity. Hey, we we let John carry all the water on that on that one. <laughs> Every good Brit knows how to levy a good insult, and most more importantly, how to uh, to send a good insult toward him or herself. The self deprecation is strong. There's a little bit of that uh, certainly from John as well. Uh, today in the early shout though, before we talk with John Champion, some preseason news and notes. A goal for Walker Zimmerman in the World Cup qualifier. Qualifying, and we're going to get to know new striker Teal Bunbury just a little bit. Tim sat down with Teal as part of a Nashville SC media availability. Got some really good insight from Teal about what he learned from being on the Supporter Shield winner New England uh, over the past few years. And, of course, the Supporter Shield took place this year. Uh, then we'll get into that interview with John Champion. We asked him a lot of questions. We talked about NSC 
some. Uh, we, we asked him what the boys in gold can expect to face in the Western Conference. He has an interesting opinion there. Um, also, John played a unique role in the club's early history that you may want to hear about. It may or may not involve Tony Husband. Um, and what are his close friends? What are John's close friends? And by close friends, I mean Alex Ferguson, Sam Allardyce. You know, he, he's, he's got a Rolodex. I'd love to see his contacts on his phone. What do they think of Major League Soccer? Um, we know that this is a league that's growing in its global perception. What about the diehards in England who have seen it all? What do they think about this league? Uh, John tells us. He gets into that with us. Um, in the mailbag, has Walker Zimmerman finally solidified a spot on the U.S. World Cup roster? He didn't start one of those three matches for the U.S. It was the one they happened not to win. Uh, also, do we expect Mike Jacobs to bring in a third DP uh, before the season or wait until summer? And what exactly does an MLS assistant coach do? Great questions from you guys, as usual. And then in Outside In, the U.S. Men's National Team, a breath away from the World Cup. The exact scenarios coming your way. Plus, should we be worried or are those just the ghosts of Cuba Trinidad haunting us? We will uh, chat about that before getting into the final whistle, but... Unless you have anything, Tim, let's go ahead and move into our early shout. It's rock and roll. All right, so Nashville, one of just two teams, Tim, that as of recording has yet to play a friendly to this point in MLS preseason. San Jose, the other one. The boys in gold had an intra-squad scrimmage, which is the ultimate test of a broadcaster. (laughs) Intra-squad scrimmage. Um, Instead of playing that first scheduled match on the 28th, looks like they'll probably do that on Saturday after Philadelphia Union 2 bowed out. But it is Charlotte coming up, finally, on Tuesday. Yeah, it should be finally good to, to hear, probably not see a whole lot of, of what's been going on down in Bradenton. Obviously, the, the club was back home over this past weekend, but they're back down there again. And actually having the opportunity to hear about real life goals scored, even if they don't count for anything, is something that obviously we spent a long time. I'm kind of, I guess, occupying ourselves with hot Tim Winter to try and find a way to fill <laughs> airtime without it. One delineation I really liked that you drew, I think it was on last week's show, was that um, friendlies against future opponents are more about your personnel, whereas friendlies against, say, a USL team, like if they'd kept that Union 2 scrimmage, is more about tactics. You don't want to reveal too much tactically to mm-hmm. teams that you're going to be playing again. So with that in mind, then, what are some things that you think Nashville SC will be looking to sort out when they take the pitch against Charlotte in that first friendly? Yeah, when we talked to Gary Smith last week, he mentioned that he's still kind of mixing and matching his 11s and he still wants to figure out who works with who and and nothing is really set in stone at this point I think for the most part we can really set a few of those guys in stone Joe Willis is going to start in goals Walker Zimmerman is going to start at center back Hani Mukhtar is going to start as, as an attacker in some capacity but figuring out maybe what that capacity is going to be if they want to continue to use that back three or if they want to go more to the back four that we saw earlier last year there are still some tactical nuances and then depending on how those tactical nuances shake out or maybe kind of uh, helping determine how those tactical nuances shape out is, is how some of these guys step up and and play in certain roles. Can a guy play right wing back when he's more of a right wing is, can a guy who's more of a fullback play on on the wing or can he play as a wing back? There's still a lot of stuff going on, I guess, particularly in those wide positions in case that didn't make it clear as to how this team can play. There are a lot of those details that the staff will be working through, and surely they will learn a lot. If we're unable to see the scrimmage, though, um, I call it a scrimmage instead of a friendly because it just feels this early on. It feels more like that, really. Is there anything that supporters can take away from this? I'm guessing the scoreline is not important unless it's 5-0 one way or the other. Is there anything that, that folks should look for, though, at the end of the day to try to gauge something from this first friendly? 
the main thing that I would look at is, is what we've looked at each of the past two preseasons. Uh, the first preseason, I believe a couple of the games uh, might have been, uh, I guess, pointed somebody's phone pointed and, and uh, periscoping it, but not actually a broadcast. <laughs> right. But uh, the main thing is, is what the substitution patterns are, because if you come out with a, a starting 11 that looks like a legitimate starting 11, then the first guy off the bench is going to be a meaningful distinction in terms of who is an actual candidate to get serious playing time during the year. Now, when they make those wholesale changes after the half or when they split it into thirds and say, okay, second, third of this game, we have a whole new 11. It's all going to be guys whose names you barely recognize or who who are new to the club. Okay. That might be a little bit less meaningful, but who those guys are who are getting reps with what looks like a first choice 11 is probably the most important part in terms of trying to figure out how this team is going to play and who's going to play for it this summer. Is there a player with the most to prove and why is it Alex Mwil on the right wing back spot? <laughs> yeah, to me, it's Alex Mwil on the right wing back spot. Wow, I never thought about that. <laughs> on a serious note, it really does depend on, you know, I'm not just sandbagging saying that I, I think that there's a, an opportunity for this club to go back to a back four. We'll see what they do. If it's a back five, yes, Mwil is going to have a lot to prove because there isn't somebody who's a natural fit in that right wing back spot. He's obviously played it a little bit, but he more often played as kind of a central midfielder in that back five with a a midfield uh, trio or duo, depending on who is in there. So there's something that if his natural position isn't available to him because Nashville SC is not playing in a, a shape that has it on the field, he's got to prove himself at a position like right wing back if he wants to continue to play as big of a role for this club as he has in his first year plus with them. For our Golden Nuggets, we'll take a a quick look at Nashville SC's other preseason opponents and how they've fared so far. We'd start again with Charlotte FC, which uh, is unbeaten after a 3-0 shellacking of Grenada, the national team, (laughs) uh, which may or may not have featured former NSC USL player Carlton Belmar. Uh, I'm not sure if he, he featured in that match, but uh, Super Draft picks Ben Bender and Kyle I would imagine the... he's playing for his USL team. In well, I guess at this point he probably is, but you never know some of these national teamers. Like, do right. they show up, you know, to get those reps there? You're right. <laughs> Does was... Granada just schedule games? Like, oh, a bunch of our guys who are playing in the United States, their clubs are training together go for preseason. Let's just, go, let's just go throw a squad together. Probably not, but hey, low-level <laughs> CONCACAF, you just never really know. <laughs> Uh, but yes, that was a nice smart aleck response of, yeah, it's preseason for him too. He's probably playing with this with his club. You're right. Uh, ben Bender and Kyle Holcomb with the goals, though, for a Charlotte team that's really still trying to find itself. A trialist uh, scored the third. Uh, it's a Charlotte squad that still has a lot of roster deficiencies, especially up top. And so, Tim, you think, you know, defensively their backbone's a little better, but their roster approach um, has been, it's hard to say spotty when we got two and a half weeks till the season, but... They've got a lot when of questions. They still your, have to answer. When you've changed your chief soccer officer in the past three weeks as well, not ideal. When one of your yeah. first signings you've already sold. Yeah. Um. A lot of a lot of questions. A lot of challenges for Charlotte FC. Meanwhile, you know, FC Cincinnati also a, an upcoming opponent for the boys in gold. They uh, are undefeated. They beat South Florida. Not South Florida FC, not Inter Miami, the University yeah, South of Florida Soccer Soldiers. Florida. Come on, man, you got to get that throwback. To they, the open I don't know that they ago. would beat the Florida Soccer Soldiers, quite <laughs> honestly. Uh, the U.S. Open Cup legends back in, uh, what, 2019, right? Yeah. Uh, 18. 18, I believe it was. Uh, anyway, they beat the Bulls of South Florida. They did concede. 3-1 the final. Uh, and uh, they tied Philadelphia Union 1-1. Uh, as Tim, a Nashville SC legend, scored the opener in preseason for FC Cincinnati. Yeah, you know, with everything he gave to the club and his 15 minutes in gold, it's it's just great to see Brandon Vasquez continuing to find success in his next <laughs> in his in the next phase of his of his career. And um, 
obviously, you know, tongue in cheek, he was traded. He was traded on on the the very first moment that he joined Nashville SC, basically in that expansion draft. But he's a guy that whose game I like, and I like seeing him succeed too. Mm-hmm. So uh, all cheek aside, it's it's good to see him succeed. And um, of course, you know, a guy who has an ever so tenuous connection to Nashville SC is it's always good to see him succeed too. Philadelphia Union drew with Cincinnati in that second match. Philly will be Nashville's third MLS opponent in preseason. They've just played that one friendly so far. They will take on Florida Gulf Coast Tuesday night. Again, that's the university, the one you may remember from advancing to the Sweet 16 under basketball coach Andy Enfield a few years ago. Uh, Dunk Coast, baby. That's right, man. FGCU, another broadcaster's nightmare to try to to rattle (laughs) off. Uh, Nashville's first opponent of the regular season, Seattle, February 27th, up in Seattle, of course, at Lumen Field. Um, They winter in Tucson, had a scoreless draw against Portland Timbers down there, lost in two legs to Colorado Rapids. Uh, 3-1, and then they actually drew in the first leg. So the second leg was the loss. First leg, mm-hmm. 1-1 draw. Uh, and Tim, we'll have plenty of time to preview that Seattle match, but this is a group that has such continuity, and they've only grown with Albert Rusnak coming in. Um, acquisitions galore to a group that I don't think many people thought needed to get richer, but they have. <laughs> yeah, well, El- Albert Rusnak comes in, and Raul Ruiz Diaz says, nah, this is still my team. He scored, he scored the lone goal. <laughs> Uh, in that match so far so or in that in the season so far since I guess that Portland game was uh, a scoreless draw but this is a team that I, you you want to kind of shake the vibes of Columbus last offseason since they added pieces without losing a whole lot and just got worse and that's not going to happen to Seattle but it do, it is that sort of a really good team just adding these dangerous pieces and I think you know you look at losing 3-1 and two legs to the Rapids in a friendly does not indicate that this is going to be any sort of struggle for, for the Sounders this year. And I really do believe that, you know, as they shake off the rust and, and kind of taper up to that game at Lumen Field against Nashville SC, they're going to be a, a real uh, terror to prepare for, for Gary Smith and his, his compatriots. So I'm workshopping a phrase, see if this works for you. If, if Rusnak assists a Rui Diaz goal in the game against Nashville, Raul Rusnak Diaz? Okay, yeah, we can, we'll continue to workshop it. We'll continue to workshop it's it. It's a starting point, at least. We'll see. We'll see if we can build on it. Uh, meanwhile, Ra- Raul, Raul Bert, could we get the... Raul Bert Rusnak Diaz. There we go. <laughs> I would like see? to keep the radio we'll job yeah. past game one, so we may, <laughs> we may tamp down the puns initially, kind of like a marriage. You don't show your worst qualities until you're into it a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh yeah, you're like. Well, moving on quickly past uh, the boys in golds preseason and on to the boys in not gold. A lot of U.S. men's national team talk, but also, of course, other players for Nashville SC playing international duty elsewhere in some key World Cup qualifiers. Anibal Gondoy and Randall Leal will start, of course, with the headliner Walker Zimmerman started, went the distance in wins over El Salvador and Honduras, and he scored a goal. The U.S. men's national team fans didn't recognize, but look familiar to NSC fans. It looked like the first goal in club history. I even tweeted that. Maybe you did too. Mm-hmm. It was, oh, a free kick from a distance, deflected down, put in with the with the boot by Walker, not the head, and uh, he put the USA in a good spot. They end up getting the win over Honduras. Um, he was also credited with an assist on Christian Pulisic's insurance goal. Um, he missed the Canadian match. I think a lot of us identified that as a potential error by Greg Berhalter beforehand and can't say that he was he he could have solely saved things but center back play was was a little spotty at times there. Yeah, and it's been the case over the course of this cycle. Um, when he plays, the United States has a 6-1 and 1 record. That's in 8 games and they've conceded three total goals. When he doesn't play, 
And yes, this Canadian game is is a big part of that. But when he doesn't play, uh, he didn't. I don't believe he played in the previous Canada game either. So it's, I'm really not, just kind of torturing the stats here. But uh, the the team is is one win, one loss, and two draws when he doesn't play, and they only have one clean sheet in that entire stretch. So I think. Based on the advanced analytics that we're running here, Walker Zimmerman <laughs> should probably be playing a little more frequently for the U.S. men's national team. And has he solidified a role in the World Cup roster if the U.S. gets there? That's a question we'll answer later in the mailbag. Um, and it was it was phrased in more of a, a, a manner of grievance by the person who asked <laughs> him. When will he finally get the credit that he deserves? But quickly, Anibal Godoy went the distance in all three Panama matches, something Nashville SC fans don't mind seeing at all in preseason Maybe right. not so much during the year, but yeah. he is March already twenty seventh. Let's not repeat this this feat here, Panama. <laughs> Man, exactly. Uh, and if if you do, then Sean Davis and Dax McCarty going to spend a lot of time together in in central midfield, which they may <laughs> already for the boys in gold. Nonetheless, two hundred seventy minutes for Anibal. He captained the squad in one 0 losses to Costa Rica and Mexico. They beat Jamaica three two. So Panama right on a razor's edge now, just a point above. Randall Leal in Costa Rica. Leal missed the first two Costa Rica games with a stomach bug. Uh, the uh, Football Federation in Costa Rica, very clear it was not COVID-related, and Leal did not make the bench for the third game as he recovered. I, I hate that Leal was not feeling well. Uh, you never want that to be the reason you miss right. out. On the other hand, I was not following as closely up in Canada at the time and thought, really, is he not even making the bench for this group? <laughs> matches? I knew he was a little yeah. bit out of favor, or maybe not preferred, but boy, mm-hmm. it's it's almost reassuring to know it was at least partially health-related and not just completely disregarded. Yeah, it's, re- it's really, really tough for Randall at this point. He absolutely loves his country. He absolutely loves his national team, but lately it hasn't necessarily worked out for him, and fans are really starting to turn on him. Uh, so it's it's really tough that to miss out for a medical reason when he kind of has limited opportunities to reprove himself to the populace. Um, in the final window with with Costa Rica playing in Canada and in the United States, it's, it's probably likely that he gets called up again. But if if this was a a cycle, you know that third window or that final window, I should say, if if Costa Rica was playing like in Jamaica, Costa Rica, and Panama. Do you think even if they called him up, he'd say, nah, "I'm good. I'm going to stay with my club team at this point because of because yeah. of how the way I'm treated and the way I, I'm kind of valued around here." I think he, if I were him, I would. But um, it's definitely a situation that's that's kind of turned on him in the past year and a half through no fault of his own, and it's really tough for the guy. That next window is in late March. Is there a world in which he shows strong club form? And it's sufficient to kind of redeem himself in the manager's eyes in that short time period, or would it take, you know, number one, a stronger impression with the international group, and number two, more time? I mean, you know, he's probably not going to score eight goals in the first three road matches for Nashville SC. Mm. It's I possible. Put, I wouldn't put a dollar on that, Wes. I think he probably will. You don't make much money <laughs> betting against Randall Leal, that's for sure. But I do wonder, seriously, if there's a world in which he shows strong club form and that at least maybe improves the perception of him with that managerial staff and gives him a little more, a little more exposure in that final window. Yeah. I wonder if, if there's almost a, a Lionel Messi situation where this dude was obviously the best player in the world. Randall Leal is not that quite yet, <laughs> but dude was obviously the best player in the world for so long. And people in Argentina were just like, eh, we don't care about him. He doesn't win with Argentina. I almost wonder if there's a situation like that with Leal where unless he does it, you know, wearing red, white, and blue versus wearing the gold, that they just aren't going to care. You heard it here first. Tim thinks that Randall Leal is going to be the next Leo Messi. 
<laughs> no, your point's taken. Your point's very well taken. And and we, we, we love seeing Randall compete and, and thrive for Costa Rica and, and hope he's able to get a chance to do that. Um, compete against the U.S. and thrive against everyone else. Uh, <laughs> speaking of someone who's competed and thrived for years in Major League Soccer, Teal Bunbury comes to the squad in the offseason via trade from New England, won the Supporter Shield there, multi-year veteran in a Bruce Arena and uh, previous regimes up there in, in New England. He comes to Nashville SC, fighting really at best, at least initially, for that third striker spot. Can also play wing. Um, Teal does bring a very strong veteran presence to this group, and he gave immediate availability last late last week. Uh, Tim, you were there, and you asked him a couple of great questions, including one that we'll play right here. You mentioned wanting to win a lot of games. Obviously, you did a ton of that last year. What, I guess, sort of lessons can you bring to a new club from you know, a Supporter Shield winning record-setting campaign that you participated in last year? The biggest thing about, I think, most teams in MLS is, is everyone hears about the parity in this league. So you, you, when you have a team that has a few special players, that helps, obviously, you know, coming on. The, the, I can name a bunch of players with Nashville. But the biggest thing is, is working for one another. I think that's really what stuck out in New England was if someone was messing up, someone was there to kind of pick them up or take care of maybe that mistake that they made, uh, have an accountability as well. And, and, you know, making sure that, okay, that next thing isn't a mistake. I think those are, are really key things. A lot of, a lot of players might think about, Oh, it has to just be the technical side or the movement or the, but I think for me, it's, it's the, uh, the relationships you have with your teammates whether you're starting, whether you're coming off the bench, how prepared you are for the games. I think that's uh, some of the bigger areas that I feel like teams should be focusing on is like how well they can work together. So Teal Bunbury, unmistakably intelligent, uh, a driver of culture within the group. Another one of these acquisitions, Tim, that you look at and say, man, he's going to be good in the locker room. Beyond that, where does he belong on this team? Do you have an over-under for goals he might score this year? Or is that secondary to the real reason maybe he was brought in, which is to, yes, provide depth, but also provide just that, that stable culture? Yeah, I mean, I hate to say a guy can be a Jaleel Anibaba because that's unfair to both of them. He's more than just a guy who provides leadership without getting a ton of playing time. And I think you could fairly say that Anibaba was hoping to get more playing time with Nashville FC. He didn't mm-hmm. come here to be a guy who's just going to be a strong locker room presence. But Bunbury is going to be that. What he gives on the field is, is I don't want to say bonus, because, again, that kind of reduces him to just being a locker room guy, which he's much more than that. I think he largely plays on the wing and maybe gets a little bit of time at striker. Hmm. But this is a guy who's who's there to be a glue guy just as much on the field as as scoring as on the field connecting and on the field doing some of the small things in, in, in the press and in defensive postures. We know how much Gary Smith values that even in his forwards. But, you know, for a, for an over-under, I, I didn't look up what Nashville SEC's like third and fourth leading scorers were on last year. But if Bunbury gets over 3.5 goals, which is where I'll set it, then you've had a really solid contribution from him on field in addition to everything else that he can provide. And a guy that you can you can trust and understand if you're bringing him on in the 85th minute as opposed to a Yonder Cadiz who maybe had more raw talent but was mercurial and and maybe a little tougher um, tougher to trust in those in those situations from a skill standpoint. All right, on to the main event for many of you: our chat with John Champion. So we've really had a 
a really nice opportunity throughout the life of this podcast to sit down with some leading voices here in town and across Major League Soccer. We spoke with Alexi Lal. We've spoken with John Strong. I'm just going to name drop for the next five minutes, and y'all can <laughs> skip ahead to the interview. Spoken um, with Tom Bogert? Yeah, of course. Of well, course, Tom Bogert. How can you forget? That. How can you forget Tommy Scoops? Tommy Scoops. He was actually really good. We've never had a bad interview on the show. There's nobody ever that we've gotten done recording the interview and Tim and I have looked like, well, that was a dud. They've all been good. But John is really, really strong. I can't call him John Strong because that's his rival competitor. Uh, the interview with John Champion, really, really strong. And, and before I continue to just botch the description of it, let's just take you to it. Let's take you to our discussion with the MLS on ESPN lead commentator, John Champion. Well, John Champion is entering his fourth season as ESPN's lead play-by-play voice for Major League Soccer. He brings global pedigree to the position since he first picked up a microphone for BBC Radio in the 1980s. He has called eight World Cups, going on nine in Qatar, countless UEFA Champions League and Premier League matches, Olympics, and you also heard him call the Euros for ESPN last summer. But John, my favorite part of your resume uh, is that you were a classically trained violin piano player into your teenage years, I understand, at which point you started skipping practice and attending York City matches. And I guess the rest is history with regard to your relationship with soccer. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I think classically trained might be stretching the definition a little. <laughs> but I grew up, both my parents were teachers. My father was the deputy headmaster of a small private school in Yorkshire, about 200 miles north of London. Uh, and we actually lived in, because he was a housemaster too, it was a boarding school. So we had music lessons on tap. And not my choice, but my parents decided that in terms of improving me as a a human being and, and, and getting a rounded upbringing, I needed to learn both the violin and the piano from the age of four. So when you start learning that early, I think it comes quite easily. So yeah, I, I went all the way through all the, the exams in the UK through violin and, and piano. But of course, and I suppose many people can identify with this, the thing that you're pushed into is the thing that you least want to do. So there came a point where I rebelled and football became my thing <laughs> rather than music. I fear that I fear that my daughter, uh, who has just started soccer at three years old, is gonna is gonna push away from it. <laughs> it's, it's it's a delicate balance as a parent. In what little spare time that you have in between broadcasts, do you still play? Did those skills stick with you? Not really. I mean, occasionally we'll pitch up in a hotel lobby with a piano in it, and someone will persuade me to go and tinkle the ivories for for a few minutes. But it it doesn't come as easily as it it once did. I haven't got the. I think, you know, I'm a man in my mid-50s. I haven't got the manual dexterity that I had when I was a four-year-old <laughs> child. So it, I, I can still, there's enough muscle memory to be able to bang out a tune, but it's not quite as fluent as I'd like it to be. MLS is obviously a very busy time of year for you, but it's not the only soccer that you call. We've referenced the Euros. You were on the mic for the FA Cup for a couple of matches this past weekend. I know you spent some time in, in your native England during the offseason, but is that term a misnomer? Do you actually get an offseason with all the all the matches that you call? I mean, increasingly over the, the course of my career, the, the off-season has got less and less, shorter and shorter, to the point of, you're quite right, almost being non-existent. I mean, one of the appeals of, of my life here in the US now is that there is a defined MLS season, so late February to early November, as it's going to be this year. And that then gives me three months just to, to draw breath, which is really important. And that was the case this past year, except everything went terribly wrong in that when I got back to England to, to go and see the rest of my family, um, I was I was carded to do a couple of games for Amazon, who've got part of the rights to the, the Premier League in, mm. in the UK. That was always the scheme of things. And beyond that, I wasn't going to do anything. But then, unfortunately, my old colleagues at the Premier League, or fortunately, depending which way you look at it, 
Uh, Omicron was sweeping the nation. It got to the stage where I think one person in 15 was infected at any one particular time. So you can imagine that cut a swathe through the ranks of commentators who were available to call Premier League games for the world feed. So I think on five separate occasions, I had phone calls out of the blue to say, X has gone down ill. Y is suddenly having to self-isolate. Please, can you step into the breach? So I ended up doing a bundle of Premier League games for the World Feed as well, which was both nice, but it also defeated the object of having a rest. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Great problem to have, but a frustrating one at the same time. And so I wonder then if that, you know, if that cut down on your ability to start thinking in advance about the 2022 MLS season and more broadly, you know, I, I'm the radio voice of Nashville SC have one team to focus on can really, you know, hone in on the storylines that are happening in Nashville, but you've got a bunch of teams to cover. You're covering every one. How do you prepare for the 2022 season? Are you building depth charts and roster boards and talking to managers, or do you take it in a game by game basis as you get the schedule and start looking through contests, you know, you're going to be covering here in the near term? Yeah. I mean, I, I know what our schedule is basically now, and we've known for a couple of months and I know that my first game in three weeks time is the galaxy against NYCFC. So that, and then going to Austin week two are probably my my initial focus because we then get a three week break. And if you think about it, I could be having conversations with managers, coaches, media officers at this stage. Um, and apart from those first four teams I'm gonna cover in weeks one and two, they'd largely be redundant because by the time we get to week five and ESPN comes back on stream with their telecasts, so much is gonna have changed. Mm -hmm. More players will have signed, more players will have left. The initial storylines of the season will be out there so really, I'd be wasting my time. So, yeah, I keep an overview of who's coming, who's going, who's doing what, new coaching appointments, things like that. But I keep a more specific focus on the teams I'm going to be doing in the early weeks of the season. So you haven't yet looked at, at that week nine matchup with Nashville and, and Philadelphia opening the NSC's new stadium. No, but I have <laughs> had a sneak visit to the stadium, only from the outside. So we were calling a Nashville game at the tail end of last season, and we were we were given a little tour around the, the outside of the ground, which was still largely a building site, but the, the shape of it was there for all to see. They were working on the internals, and it looked massively impressive. So I can't wait for week nine and a trip to the new stadium in Nashville. It'll be great. And you've really immersed yourselves in, yourself in the atmospheres of you know Nashville to come, but also of Providence Park and Seattle mm -hmm. and, and and all over the place here in the U.S. and And you mentioned to Grant Wall in that interview where I also learned about your you know your classical training, if you will, <laughs> uh, musically. You mentioned that, that your reason for moving to the U.S. full time in 2019 was to change your modus operandi a bit and to experience some of those things here in the U.S. for the first time. Because as great as the gigs were that you had in England, you were doing those things for the third, fourth, fifth, sixth or more time. Yeah. So I'm wondering now, three years later, and as you enter your fourth season calling matches uh, full time in MLS, how has calling matches for a U.S. audience changed your on-air approach, changed that modus operandi for you? I mean, it's not just the, the, the change in the way that you broadcast, because I'm not sure there is that much of a change in the way that you broadcast, because I am me, and for good or for bad, I've been me for the last 35 years, appearing periodically on US television. So if I suddenly pitch up here and I'm something radically different, I'm not being true to myself, and I'm not being what ESPN invested in, in bringing me over. So I am me. But I think the bigger challenge and the change to my modus operandi has just been that instead of covering a league the premier league that i know inside out and i know all the people and i can call the managers and i can talk to significant figures within the game and get good information suddenly i'm coming to an arena where basically apart from the likes of say adrian heath and phil neville i don't really know anyone so i've got to start from scratch and i didn't really know the league not in the true sense of knowing it i mean now you could talk to me about 
any roster, certainly from the tail end of last season, and I'd be able to guide you through it, even the Canadian clubs as well, um, just because I, I'm keeping a close weekly focus on it. But to start with, the beginning of 2019, I was coming over with largely a, an empty mind in terms of what MLS was. I'd been brought over for a few seasons to periodically do a, a game here and there. So I got a taste of it, knew that I enjoyed it, knew that it was young, fresh, up and coming, exciting, had enormous growth potential. But in, you talk specifically about my change of modus operandi. And I suppose that is just having to be granular, really, in the way that you approach each game, rather than thinking, oh, it's Manchester United, Liverpool again. I've done this fixture 25 times. I know all the history. I know all the players. I'd be coming to a game in that first season, even if it was LAFC against the Galaxy or Portland, Seattle, uh, one of the classic fixtures of Major League Soccer. And I'd be having to research everything. And to, to some degree, I still am. And I, I welcome that because... I got to the stage where I didn't really have to think too deeply about calling games in England, whereas here I have to think about every single one. And you're marrying so much of that rich global experience that you have uh, of World Cups, Champions League, Premier League, to that that emerging MLS market. I wonder then, I think you, you one thing that, that typifies your broadcast to me that I enjoy is that you're regularly bringing in some of those references to global soccer, to Premier League. In, in relating that to an audience in MLS where most fans are not just Major League Soccer fans. They have, they've heard mm. your voice for years. They they have a Premier League team. You know, they, they care about international soccer. I wonder how you marry then your global experience into your MLS broadcasts in a way that lends useful perspective and context rather than illustrating maybe the relative smallness of, you know, SKC Minnesota on a Wednesday night in June. Because naturally, when you relate you know, a World Cup match or Arsenal-Liverpool to SKC Minnesota, it can have the effect of of minimizing the MLS match unless unless you do it right. And I think you strike that note very well, and I wonder how you manage that. Um, I, I think it's just what I would naturally do. Whatever league I was doing, say that I'd moved to do the French League for, for whatever reason, I, I think I'd, I'd still be using those experiences around the world to try and draw parallels to maybe um, discuss some of the differences between those environments. I just think it's a very useful tool as a broadcaster. And also, I wouldn't necessarily agree. Yes, in terms of global profile, SKC against Minnesota, the game that you quote, is not a massive deal, but it's part of a league that is growing season on season. And I'm just very conscious that, you know, this is going to be season 27 of MLS. It began in 1996. If you translate that to the English system, their league began in 1888. So season 27 was would have been 1915. Unfortunately, it was the First World War. So 1919-20 would have been the equivalent season when Arsenal, famously a North London club, played in the south of the city, below the river, and had a different name, Woolwich Arsenal. Uh, there were all sorts of teams that you'd never heard of playing in the top flight of English football. I'm just conscious that we're on a, a steep development slope in the United States, which is part of the excitement for me. So I don't look down in any way on MLS as a league or MLS fixtures because I think they've got their own appeal. And I really do. It's one of the things I feel most strongly after four years here that MLS can stand loud and proud on its own two feet and say, look, we are a proper league. Yes, there are differences here in terms of salary caps and the, the timing of the season. Um, the lack of promotion and relegation, if I'm even allowed to utter those two dreadful <laughs> words. Um, but it's really good. And I talked to people back in the UK who follow Major League Soccer, who 10 years ago didn't. So there's no question it's heading in the right direction. It's never going to be a smooth line of progression. 
But I went through the early years of the Premier League. You know, I covered the old first division before the Premier League came into existence in 1992. And the Premier League 30 years ago, in those first few embryonic seasons, and the Premier League now are entirely different products and leagues. So I think we've got to have faith in MLS. Yes, there are frustrations, but it's heading in the right direction. And in a country of 330 million that produces so many brilliant athletes across many sports, and in a country where soccer is the biggest participant sport amongst young people, surely it's got every chance of eventually getting there to that level enjoyed by the big European leagues. From that perspective, you mentioned that you've seen it growing year over year and, and maybe some of that, that in, is included in, in seeing people in the UK having a little bit more awareness of it. What are some of the ways in the time that you've been covering the league, which is obviously not quite all the way back to 1996, but, but it's for a pretty significant period of time now. What are some of the ways that you've seen it grow and, and what are some of those signs of growth? I think the biggest thing is just the change of, of model, if you like. So to so many people, particularly the other side of the Atlantic, MLS was a retirement league for so long because they would see uh, top-notch players, but at the very end of their career, when they got very little left to offer in Europe and opportunities there were dwindling, would come for one last payday. And I, I think that was, at the time, probably a reflection of the way that the world viewed MLS. But now they have this model where, basically, they've all got academies, all the clubs, so they're 10 years into academies, they're producing a bundle of good quality American players with great potential, which we're seeing now moving to Europe. They've also sussed that to get the best players from South America and bring them through MLS en route to Europe is another means, A, of generating money and B, of improving the quality of the league. So if you were to ask me for the one biggest thing, it would be that instead of purely watching aging European players who we remember from 10 years ago, now we're seeing the players we're going to be talking about in Europe five, 10 years from now. So I think that's a much healthier situation to be in. And to that point, you mentioned the, the contacts that you have around the Premier League, the Alex Ferguson's and Sam Allardyce's of the world. Mm. Um, what are they telling you about their perception of this league? Does that mirror your perception of its growth? Have they taken on maybe a longer time to pay attention or, or are they saying some of these similar things? And they're saying some of these similar things. I mean, I think the biggest thing I can say for the likes of those big name managers and coaches in England is that MLS is now genuinely on their radar. And it needs to be because it's actually a fertile recruitment ground. And we're seeing that by the number of young American players in particular being signed by big clubs right across Europe. So I think that's the most significant change that whereas it was something that they could take it or leave it perhaps a decade ago, now they have to be right across it. And certainly in the case of the English Premier League, it's available on UK television in a very accessible way. And of course, the time difference works over there because the majority of the matches are on late on a Saturday or Sunday evening, UK time, when there is no other soccer on the television. So they actually get more eyeballs than they would otherwise get, which is great. You, I'm sure, were very happy to return to stadiums uh, last summer <laughs> from from a, a year or so of, of remote calls, and you'll be back in stadiums this season. Uh, that's great to hear. We call road matches remotely, and it's a different challenge. It's, it's yeah. fun at times, but it's different. I wonder then, from that experience calling games remotely almost exclusively there for, for more than a year, um, did that tweak your preparation and technique at all for when you returned to stadiums? Was there anything from a broadcast standpoint that, that you began doing that then you incorporated into your approach when you were back in the booth? Not especially. I mean, I, I know that I was very relieved to get back in the booth at stadiums and just to be able to do the job properly rather than in this sort of compromised fashion that you have when you're just working from a, a TV screen. So that was the biggest thing. I think I'm also conscious, and it wasn't the first time I had to call games off monitor. And periodically over the years, I've had a bundle of games here and there for whatever reason that I've had to do it. And 
I, I don't want to use I don't want to use the word hate. I intensely dislike doing it, <laughs> and I also think it, it it can imbue bad habits in broadcasters. Uh, I think you can get a little bit lazy because you're so restricted in what you can see. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you are quite as sharp in your reaction to things because you look at something and whatever the quality of the picture, I don't think you ever trust something you see on a television screen to quite the same 100% level that you trust if you've seen it with your own eyes. Mm -hmm. So you might get uh, a corner uh, played in and three heads go up. One of the heads makes contact. It's a flying header into the top corner, opening goal of the game. If you're at the ground, you try and pride yourself on saying in that instant that that player makes contact with his forehead and scores the goal what his or her name is and certainly for me I never have that 100% confidence to do so if I'm calling it off monitor and that's a horrible feeling because you just feel you're not delivering what you could potentially be delivering but trying to persuade an accountant or a safety <laughs> officer that in fact you are so compromised by not being there is quite a difficult conversation because unless you've done it it's very difficult to explain it. I can certainly understand it. For me, the biggest challenge beyond what you're saying, the, the limitations of not seeing the full picture and seeing the 11 v 11 and understanding what's coming is manufacturing that enthusiasm and energy on the call as well, especially when stadiums were empty as well and we were calling remotely. It was difficult to to, to summon that same level of adrenaline that you have when you're surrounded by 15,000 or more fans. And um, I, I wonder what it was like then to return to a stadium to hear those fans, even maybe at half capacity for the first time, and, and what, that, what that infused into your broadcast. It was Nirvana really, to feel that energy, that buzz, just to sense people around you, to have something to feed off. I mean, some of the hardest games I've ever called were the MLS's back fixtures in Orlando, where we were calling them from ESPN HQ in Bristol, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And clearly there was no crowd. And uh, our company decided to actually use that as a benefit and to spend a lot of money on extra microphones around the pitch uh, so that you could eavesdrop on the coaches as they talk to the players. You could hear everything that the players were shouting at each other, uh, for better or for worse. And it was an interesting approach, but it did mean that there were long periods of games where the match was in progress and there was just nothing to feed off. And our colleagues on Fox, they did have crowd noise. Mm -hmm. And I think they probably had an easier ride of it. Maybe they missed some of those intimate moments between coaches and players or one player and another that we got because it was drowned out by the fake crowd noise. But I think it's an interesting debate off the back of that. Certainly for the commentators, I think it was harder without having the crowd noise to help us. One manager who it would be risky to mic up on the sideline and have on national television is Gary Smith. What are your observations about the move that he has made coming from the UK, from League One soccer over there to the US and success he has had? You have unique perspective into the challenges of navigating that transition. What is your assessment of the job that he has done coming back to MLS after some time at Stevenage and, uh, and taking Nashville to a solid first couple of seasons? I think he's done a tremendous job. Uh, I mean, the, the biggest accolades of all uh, should be directed at him because, I mean, the story goes back a long time with Gary because he was a renowned scout and coach, uh, partially at non-league level and in the lower leagues in, in England. His dad was a, a very respected uh, scout as well with one of the big London clubs, Roger Smith, who still talks to Gary, I think, after every game and provides yeah. feedback. And it would be lovely to be able to eavesdrop on one or two of those <laughs> conversations. But I mean, I first dealt with Gary when he was the manager of Stevenage. I called a game in the UK where uh, they went to Tottenham to play, I think, in the fifth round of the FA Cup mm -hmm. um, in a replay. 
and, and gave them a, a really good game. And I was aware of his background at that stage, which the headline in his career at that point was having won MLS Cup with Colorado in, in 2010. Um, so I, I knew of him in an American context. He'd sort of come from left field to take over at Stevenage, which was quite a difficult club to manage for various reasons. Um, and he was following a, a very successful regime. And that only lasted about a year and a half. Um, uh, and he actually did really well with them. And then he disappeared off my radar again. And I think he came back to Atlanta, Atlanta switchbacks at one stage uh, and saw that America was a, a good route forward. So I just admire the fact that he came in from nowhere, won MLS Cup, went, tried his luck in England, where it, it is quite difficult to, to get a job in the lower divisions that gives you as a manager a fair chance because the odds are stacked against you. And then when that didn't entirely work out, to come back and say, no, America's for me, and to do it all over again with Nashville in what's now a much more competitive league. So I think you could argue that although he's yet to win silverware with Nashville, actually getting him so quickly to the stage that they're at is almost a bigger achievement than winning MLS Cup 12 years ago. So you mentioned that he came back with the Atlanta Silverbacks. Obviously, you also previously mentioned that we don't have pro promotion and relegation in this hmm. country, but to see a coach like Gary kind of make the, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a linear progression over the course of his career because he's kind of bounced to various levels, but what does that kind of say about maybe the stability and level of success that he has found with Nashville? Um, I think it says a lot about the, the stability. I, we shouldn't forget the team around him as well. I think having Steve Guppy alongside him, a great foil for Gary. Uh, and also you know, in his fifties, he's still got just about the best left foot anywhere in MLS. I mean, he was he was known as the left footed David Beckham when he was playing for Leicester City and, mm -hmm. and England on, on one occasion. Um, and uh, one of my treats is, is going to watch training the day before a game and to see Steve Guppy deliver a ball, albeit playfully, because he's not really sort of a central part of training. He's there to guide the players rather than show them just how good he is. But my <laughs> word, he can still do it. Um, I find the pair of them really engaging because it's like a taste of home. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're the sort you can go and you can have a really good chat uh, about football, uh, no restrictions. You get a really nice mug of English tea as well, which is a big plus, uh, with proper milk and proper tea bags. Um, so I, I just, it's, it's a little pocket of what I'm used to because he manages that club, albeit in a very different structure and a very different environment, in the way that a manager would, would coach a, an English club, um, which is unsurprising, but I think he's been very clever in the few adjustments that he's made, which accommodate MLS. Lots of familiarity here between Gary and Steve, but also Ian Eyre, of course, coming over yeah. from Liverpool, and yes. and Tony Husband, of course, calling calling. Yeah, sorry here. about that. That's largely my fault. Um, <laughs> oh, it is. I, mean, I, hold, I hold my hands up. Really, I've I've inflicted him on you, and I, I can only say that I'm deeply apologetic for that. <laughs> I, I remember him mentioning that 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 it kind of came about rather suddenly, right? But that you'd mentioned there may oh. be an opportunity here, and he was very grateful. And we are sometimes grateful that you mentioned well, that to him. Well, yeah, very occasionally. Yeah, the story was. Uh, I mean, it happened just over two years ago, uh, and I was calling a game again on my sort of Christmas vacation. I was at Southampton doing Southampton Tottenham on New Year's Day, and I was in the media suite having lunch beforehand. And Tony was there, you know, snaffling about 17 courses of food, a free, <laughs> free meal. He's never wanted to turn his back on that. And we got tasked chatting, and I'd known Tony for many years and knew that he had a great love for America and in particular for American sports. And someone from Nashville had been in touch with me saying, look, can you help me? find an announcer. We haven't got long, but we want to find someone. We need someone good, someone authoritative, someone who's respected in the UK. And I put forward a couple of names. And I think they'd had initial conversations. And maybe 
whoever they were talking to didn't have quite the courage that Tony did to actually go for something a bit different. Because it is a leap of faith. I mean, I did it and I I agonised over it for probably four years. I had the chance to come four years before I actually came. And that was partly because of the age of my kids and the disruption to their education. But also just do I really want to leave the Premier League, the Champions League and all that, that glamorous football behind? And I think Tony had to go through that same process, but he went through it very quickly. So we were having this chat over lunch and I said, look, I've been contacted by a new MLS club, really exciting venture, Nashville, great place to live. Would you be interested? And his eyes lit up and we continued the conversation that night because I relayed his interest back to Nashville. And by the next day, he and the club were talking and a week later, they'd agreed a deal. Well, well, things happen fast. And something yeah. else that seemed to happen fast, at least from our perspective, was was the move of Ian Eyre to, to be yeah. the chief executive of the club. Happened when, when Nashville was still in USL. And of course, he played then the integral role in, in building Nashville into what it is. When you learned of that move, of, of someone coming from the, the heights of Liverpool, took a quick stop in Germany, but but basically yeah. coming from Liverpool to to Nashville, did that come across to you as a as a statement of intent for this club? And, and how has it played out relative to your expectations? Um. It's played out as I would expect it to do because he's a very good operator. Uh, yes, it, it struck me as a statement of intent. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that Atlanta went down a similar route. And look how successful they were in mm -hmm. their first two or three seasons in MLS by appointing a guy called Darren Eels, who'd been the director of football administration, albeit a slightly lesser role, but a very influential one at Tottenham. Um, so I think maybe Nashville had looked at that. Maybe John Ingram had looked at that model seen how well it had worked and thought well we'll try and replicate that and if you're going to try and replicate that then someone that's open-minded like ian i think is the best possible appointment and i can't stress that enough whether it's ian air it's tony husband it's me whoever else that's brought in i do think you need to be open-minded and can't just come in and say right we've worked in the environment of the biggest soccer league in the world the most successful commercial sporting environment anywhere uh, so we know everything because it very, very quickly becomes apparent that we are a long way short of knowing everything <laughs> and that we have a lot to learn. And I think that's one of the beauties of Ian, that he's come, he's brought all his experience, but he's open-minded enough to know that this is a different environment and there are people around him that can help him to learn. And that's something you embody well in the booth. It's something Tony, I, I've praised him on and off air for his curiosity, that he comes in and he brings so much of the experience and legacy and understanding of the game, but he comes over and he's curious about local traditions as well. And that mm. means a lot, I think, yeah. to the audience here as well. Uh, my last question for you is Nashville moves to the Western Conference. It's going to be mm. getting to know a, a new group of, of opponents. I wonder what storylines in the West you are following and if you had a maybe a, an elevator pitch introduction to what Nashville's going to be experiencing besides the long plane flights out west how will that differ in your uh, ex expectation from what they've seen in the east the last couple of years i think the standards higher in the western conference i think they're in for a, a tougher ride i think they'll cope with it admirably i think they'll fit in really well um i mean travel is now much more comfortable with the the preeminence of charter flights rather mm -hmm. than having to fly scheduled all the time so i think that's less of a factor and i'm sure all the preparation will be done in minute detail in terms of when they travel, where they stay, training facilities. So I don't see that as a particular worry. I think they should embrace the differences and embrace the fact that they'll be playing in warmer climates more often than not. They'll be playing against some really good teams in really great venues. I mean, LAFC is fantastic on a small level. Seattle is brilliant when they've got the 65,000 in. Providence Park is just about my favourite at the moment, just mm. because it reeks of history <laughs> and authenticity and it's full every week. And it's got that half a century of back catalogue 
about it. And wherever you go in the Western Conference, uh, even the smaller teams, you know, uh, Minnesota is a, is a great trip and a wonderful environment. Sporting Kansas City is always really good. So I think wherever they go, they're going to be playing significant opposition. I think a slightly better class of opposition. And I think vive la difference. Just em embrace the change, <laughs> the fact that the, the scenery is going to be different. Yeah, and we've we've said something similar that it's it's you know a, a two hundred level course in Major League Soccer culture and tradition. You know, whereas mm -hmm. the one hundred level happened in the first couple of years in the East. Really excited about seeing that, and exciting about hearing you bring us those calls uh, when you're in the press box, Week Nine, uh, May first. Uh, we'll be sure to say hello and uh, best of luck as you enjoy what little off season you have and get ready for for twenty twenty two Major League Soccer. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you and uh, really look forward to seeing you week nine in Nashville in glittering new surroundings. Can't wait. Thanks so All much, right. Sean. Thank you. Thank you. So, Tim, there's there's really probably nobody in U.S. soccer broadcasting that's better connected globally than John Champion. I'm racking my brain to think, but this is a guy who's been calling games in England since the 80s, even new Gary Smith back at Stevenage. So connected to Nashville, connected to uh, to names around the globe. What do you make of the fact that a guy who is that well-versed and that well-connected would choose to come to the United States to be a part of something here beyond calling national team matches? His answer to my question about what do you kind of see, you know, practically in terms of how MLS is increasing its uh, profile around the world, I think kind of dovetails with that. He, he, earnestly believes that this league is growing in ways that are going to make it not necessarily an international power. Uh, I think with a salary cap league, he was also very clear about that, but that's <laughs> a very different situation than most of these leagues around the world. But he sees it as, as kind of a, a growth market and something to, that he can be a part of helping grow. And that's something that's really interesting to me when he does, as you mentioned previously, you know, have the, the Rolodex that he does, whether it's big Sam, whether, whether it's Arsene Wenger, whoever it is, this is a guy that has, you know, global cachet and to choose to come to major league soccer. I think you have to have a, a, a sincere belief in what he says that he sincerely believes in. It can't just be talk. You don't just come over from England and automatically instill credibility because you are from England. Uh, that's not how this works. You can't just bring the accent, but, but him coming over and a guy like Tony husband coming over to Nashville and bringing not just the accent, but the connections, the history, the, the experience, all those things. Um, I think we've, we both believe strongly in advancing American voices and growing the American, you know, presence in, in this, in this beautiful game, bringing that to the world. But sometimes you also have to bring the world to the American game. And I think John is a tremendous example, as is his buddy Tony, who we helped get the Nashville SC job, of guys who've come in and they've been curious and unassuming, but also very clear that they have a background in this and bringing mm -hmm. that background and those connections to um, to American sport. I think it's 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 a good thing. And, and John's done an outstanding job with Taylor Twelman and crew at, uh, at ESPN. Let's get you to the mailbag now and hear your questions. We'll start with Wyatt, and it's the question we referenced earlier in the show. We're just going to read it verbatim here because I love the way he phrased this. Super Duper Wyatt says, What does Zimmerman have to do to prove to the Euro snobs that he's good enough for the team? Also, does Burhalter deserve all the hate he gets? So Scuffed has the magic plane theory, which is kind <laughs> of a, a slightly insulting way to refer to the way Euro snobs see some guys coming out of MLS. 
explaining that simply the process of stepping on a plane to complete a transfer to Europe automatically gives you, you know, four XP points in FIFA or whatever it would be. Um, there are a lot of examples of this. Daryl DK and Brendan Aronson are the two that immediately spring to mind. These were guys at the Euro snaps are saying, who knows, who cares? And then all of a sudden, DK lights up the championship last year. Aronson's lighting up Austria this year. And these guys are suddenly, holy cow, I love these U.S. men's <laughs> national team players. So with that in mind, uh, there's nothing Zimmerman can do on, on the field that will change the way he's perceived because he's perceived the way he is because of what he represents more than the player that he actually is. And to be fair, he's not a perfect player. There's a room to improve his distribution, and I, I, I'm certain he's going to continue doing that over the course of this MLS season and leading into the World Cup. But in terms of, of winning over those fans, I think the, the, the goal doesn't have to be winning over those fans. The goal has to be <laughs> making it on a plane to Qatar this November, and I believe that he's well on that track. I was going to ask, do you think he's won over Berhalter to the extent that he can at this point? Yeah, yes. Obviously, you're seeing him <laughs> not be used in important games like the Canada game last week. So that there is something that you kind of cast a side eye at and say, okay, if Berhalter trusted him, would he be playing in this game against the most talented attacking court in this region right now? Uh, maybe this side of the U.S., but maybe more talented than the U.S. as well. And to this point, Berhalter maybe still doesn't trust Zimmerman in that circumstance. So there's still more winning over to do, and, and so we'll see. But at this stage, you know, the, the stat that I cited way up at the top of the show that the team is so much more successful with him on the field, and yes, some of that is not playing against Canada in either game, but <laughs> some of it is also that this guy plays for defenses that don't give up goals for the most part. Moving on to the second part of that question, does Berhalter deserve all the hate he gets? We would both agree he gets plenty on on social media. And I would say, number one, most people don't deserve the level of hate they get on Twitter. That's just the definition of Twitter. But no, Berhalter, in my opinion, does not, in fact, deserve the level of vitriol that he receives. Even when you get past the extremists who are going to be unhappy with a 4-0 win because you didn't score 5 uh, when you get to the mainstream sentiment, which has bent many times against Berhalter, I, I think it can be unfair. I think it can be extreme. And, and to back up my point, I'll, I'll take a look at the U.S. men's national team's points per game in qualifying this cycle compared to previous cycles where it qualified. We're not going to even talk about 2018 and the 1.2 points per game because that's not Never the heard standard, of it. obviously. Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, Trinidad, that's a country. I don't know. Uh, U.S. so far in qualifying this cycle, 1.9 points per match in their 11 matches. Um, that's with an emergent Canada, whereas before this was largely, you know, a, a two, two and a half uh, team if, if Costa Rica was feeling it, um, Confederation. Mm -hmm. So 1.9. In 2014, 10, and 6, the U.S. finished at the top of the group. In each of those cases, 2.2 .2 points per game, 2.0, 2.2. 1.9 just a just a tick shy of that. Just a tick shy, despite the fact that Canada is emerging as a new superpower. The U.S. is just still very close to the Canadians in, in the table. You take six points out of nine in the final window, you're at 1.93 points per game. Not demonstrably different results from the other last three times that you qualified. And what's the motto in CONCACAF and in so much of soccer, but especially in CONCACAF? Take care of business at home. Gut it out on the road. It doesn't need to be pretty. The U.S. at home, five wins, no losses, one draw. Results speak for themselves. Now, the criticism that many of you are going to levy in response to that is, yeah, but how are they getting those results? Yeah, El Salvador was not impressive. A 1-0 win over a group that, that was in shambles this time a couple of years ago. And El Salvador has really built something, but it's not a match that was supposed to be particularly close. We forget that 
they're a couple of dynamite saves away from winning three nothing and us not having this conversation. Uh, there didn't appear to be a cohesive plan in Canada. There is criticism due there, um, but the scoring rate for the U.S. one point six goals per match, just slightly below those two thousand ten. 2014 numbers um are there style issues yeah it's not always as pretty as it should be is the club always matching the sum of its parts no not always there's criticism to be had here but i think you miss me when you start worrying about him promoting the shoes he's wearing or taking selfies with fans who cares about that stuff man stop trying to get the guy fired it's not happening style points in Concacaf do not exist they just don't exist win at home try to pray for a draw on the road uh, they've done that, and I'm not going to be Mr. Status Quo and always praise the guy in power. I could sit here and tell you three or four things I was frustrated by against Canada, things that have been misses, but he's the guy, and he doesn't deserve the level of hate that he gets, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, the level of hate that anybody gets is is kind of separate from, is this a good coach? And you can disagree <laughs> on whether or not Greg Berhalter is a good coach. I think the level of hate that he gets is not commensurate with the level of coach that he is either way. Um, the shoe thing, the selfie thing, that is just an opinion reinforcer of how people already felt about mm-hmm. him. If he had won the World Cup four years ago with some other nation, people would be saying, this guy is awesome because he's taking selfies with his team up three, nothing late in a game and in St. Paul, Minnesota, since people were already kind of not sold on him. And, and, you know, despite some okay results, I'll get into that in a second, but um, despite some okay results, some people already didn't like him because of the way he was hired. Maybe his, his older brother, Jay, or maybe younger brother. I really don't know. His brother, Jay was, had to recuse himself from the hiring process to, to avoid any appearance of impropriety. His brother works for us soccer. So, People don't like him for that reason. Re- represents MLS in a similar way to Walker Zimmerman, as I mentioned before. But the main thing that you have to look at is what the guy does as a coach. And um, you can disagree with coaching decisions, and that doesn't make the guy an idiot. And that's what, what the level of vitriol <laughs> is. Um, the one thing that I would think is uh, what the results are right now. And people say, okay, this is the most talented generation the United States has ever seen. And that's absolutely true. Uh, hopefully hopefully it continues mm-hmm. to develop and, and prove that that statement correct but when you look at what he's been without Weston McKenney missed a couple games uh, with personal issues including the one here in Nashville which if he had been there would the United States have beaten Canada maybe maybe we'll, we'll we will never know it's unknowable but um, some of the bad results have been without some of the best players um, I think Tyler Adams has been a little bit banged up over the course of this um, and some of the these omissions are Berhalter's fault and I think that's where people with a legitimate gripe against him really have something um john brooks is a guy who's playing for a bundesliga club and berhalter hasn't seen him uh talented enough or or useful enough to call up for the past two windows and that's certainly something that people can disagree with when his club is also trashing john brooks uh clearly there's more going on off the field there that berhalter doesn't want to drag the dirty laundry into public but uh you know we'll leave that for those guys i think when you look at some of the personnel decisions they can be explained but when you do have to explain a lot of them there can be a pattern. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the last thing that you mentioned though, is probably what a lot of people don't like about him. And that's the style. Mm-hmm. This is a very defensive team that says, okay, we have really talented players up top. I'm, we're just going to get them the ball and let them cook a little bit. Um, obviously Nashville SC fans are not necessarily so down on that style <laughs> of play with Hani Mukhtar and, um, you know, Randall Leal playing the Christian Pulisic and, and Eunice Musa and, and Jordan Pifak roles mm-hmm. to an extent, but, I think uh, it's weird that PFOC was the guy that I went to there. I don't know. That's, but I, I think that the, the the big thing is you can see that Berhalter is trying to implement 
a possession oriented style and it's not necessarily working yet. And I think that's what has a lot of people frustrated, but with the talent that this nation has currently taking the field for, for qualifying window after qualifying window, there's a really good chance that it just clicks. And if it sticks with the sort of defensive solidity that we've seen, and all of a sudden this nation is also already scoring or excuse me, and all of a sudden this team is scoring four goals in addition to not letting any in, people are going to be really happy with it. And there's no guarantee that it happens, but if it does, that's something that people will look back and kind of laugh at some of the hate that Burhalter got. Man, this could be a whole podcast episode just itself, and, and I'll I'll leave it and move on now. But yeah, I, 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 I trimmed a lot of what I was going to say. You can see it in the rundown. I'd, I'd, I'd excise a little bit of it there. We could go 60 <laughs> minutes on this. We can go 60 minutes on on like anything on, yeah. on bluey on anything these days oh. um yeah uh-oh. i've just i've just gotten you excited about that uh, we do encourage you guys though um to tell us what you think on social media reach out to us on twitter at club country usa at west bowling tn and give us your opinions you probably many of you probably disagree with what we've said we can handle that give your hate to us come on bring it anyway moving on to trevor bryant he asks a good question, something we haven't really discussed much. He says, with a few changes to the coaching staff this offseason, can you speak to what role the assistant coaches play on an MLS roster? Yeah, I'll just get right into Nashville SC specifically because that's the club that we're obviously most familiar with. Gary Smith is a, is a very big kind of part whole holistic overview, but concentrated in one area, which is largely the central midfielders and the defenders. Surprising. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What I just said about it, about his style of play as it relates to Greg Berhalter's style of play, that should not be a surprise. Um, but he's he's also a very talented kind of overseer of the whole project, too. So I don't want to minimize what Gary Smith does. And I think the results would lead you to say, let's not minimize that. Um, in terms of the other assistants, Steve Guppy is a guy who focuses a ton on technique. He's essentially a, a technique coach in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, he's nominally the wingers coach, but the coaches, all of the wide players, fullbacks included, and the forwards, particularly helping those guys in their ability to, to take on the dribble. This is what that dude did at, at Leicester City, as, as John champion mentioned earlier in the podcast and this is a guy who knows how to win 1v1s uh maybe greg berhalter could bring him as a consultant for the next u.s camp (laughs) um i think uh you know kosuke kimura we haven't seen in training yet but he was a a player assistant with the usl team and he was like a fitness obsessed guy i'm sure it will shock everyone to to see the way he played to know that's what he did but he came at it from a different angle than the true strength and conditioning coaches but he was kind of the guy who you know, if Guppy's like a technique coach for kind of everybody, Kimura's a, a work rate coach for kind of everybody. And then, of course, um, don't want to leave the guy out that uh, people probably most associate with being a player coach in the USL days. And that's Matt Pickens. Uh, I don't I, I don't know what the keepers do at any training session. Go play Pokemon Go off in the corner or something <laughs> like that. But, but yeah, he's, he's very specifically the goalkeepers coach launching shots at his guys over the course of training. You mentioned Kosuke being fitness obsessed when he was still on the USL team. I was talking to a former uh, person who was with the club at the time. He said they sat down at the lunch table across from him during training camp, and he poison. just looked at their tray. Poison. He's, yep, exactly. That's poison. That's poison. That's poison. <laughs> um, yeah, whatever Kosuke was doing, he could still be playing if he wanted to. Worked worked pretty well. Uh John Mueller asks how concerned Nashville SC fans should be about losing Jack Mayer to St. Louis. Jack is from Illinois, but a suburb of St. Louis. And he compares it to Sporting Kansas City recently losing Jalen Lindsay to Charlotte. How much appeal, he asks, does going home have for a young player versus building a legacy at a different team? And of course, speaking first to that appeal piece, that's subjective and, and down to the player, of course, and what they may prefer and 
the organization for which they're leaving. But the bottom line is there's no reason to be concerned. Uh, Meru is not eligible for free agency until after five seasons of play plus 24 years of age, which if he reaches five seasons, he'd be above 24. But he's only entering season three. So the only way he goes anywhere is if the club decides not to renew his contract. He's only in St. Louis if the club doesn't want him in Nashville. And, and everything we've heard from the club suggests it wants him here. So should you be worried about losing him? You only lose Jack Mayer if that's the kind of player you, you want to lose anyway at this point. And there's no indication that's the case. Listen, people's hearts are still broken about Alistair Johnston. Don't uh, <laughs> don't speak too out of turn Once in terms twice of worrying shy. about it. There, but <laughs> yeah, like you said, I don't see the Lindsay and Mayer situations being as comparable. Lindsay went home, yeah, but he largely did it because he felt it was time to move on from Sporting Kansas City, and and both SKC and Charlotte FC were willing to kind of deal with that. I think SKC was probably ready to move him along as well. So, if you're worried about losing Jalen Lindsay and you're Sporting Kansas City, you don't you don't get rid of him. You know, yeah. and it's a similar situation with Jack Mayer there, but Mayer isn't going to hit that wall that Lindsay maybe seemed to with SKC, at least not anytime soon. So, unless Nashville wants to get rid of him because there's a huge payday coming, I don't think there's anything to worry about there. There are two questions that I think are more dominant than any other right now among Nashville SC fans. One, is there a right wing back coming in? We've talked about Alex Meal getting a chance to probably audition there. You had a great talk with, with Tom Bogert last week on that very subject. But number two is the question from good friend of the show, John Cade. He asks, will Nashville sign a third DP before the season or wait until summer? It's something we've discussed, but hey, with each you know, couple weeks, probably been a month or so, certainly since I've discussed it with you, it, it, it brings new perspective and new information. And, and so it's a fair question to ask. I still think the answer is the summer at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Never rule out anything. Mike Jacobs in our interview with him recently didn't even really rule out not signing a third DP, you know, um, because this club, because of its 2 million in GAM alone that came from trading Alistair plus international slots, it's it's buying down so many guys that are well above the salary cap that it's relying on a bunch of really good players instead of all three potentially you know club changing players. Um, I don't think a chemistry driven club would would introduce a new element midway through its nascent phases in preseason. I think Gary Smith would rather work with what he has now and build what he has now and introduce somebody later in the year almost than in the formative stages of preseason all of a sudden bring somebody into the mix when you're building uh that that can seem counterintuitive but i think just based on how this club has operated before they'd rather bring somebody in on a bit of a trial no pressure basis midway through the year uh than put them in at this stage of preseason maybe a month ago but maybe not now uh but again take solace in the fact that that more than two million dollars in gam freshly acquired this year from Alistair's trade, from the international slot trades, assets Nashville wasn't going to use anyway uh, in, in the international slot cases. Those are buying down high-priced veterans and building depth throughout the club, even if they don't have the flash at the top other than Hani Mukhtar and hopefully Ake Loba. The main thing that makes me think that it's going to happen in the summer, other than a, a history of Nashville SC doing this, evaluating <laughs> over the first half of the season what they need, is it's more likely that, that you don't have to spend quite as much because you're potentially going to find a guy whose contract has just expired, who's not playing. And yes, we saw with John Ducati's when he came in that there are problems with a guy who hasn't been playing over the past several weeks. Um, obviously, in his case, <laughs> there was a global pandemic in, involved as well. In Ake Loba's case, it was just a guy who had been out of season with Monterey and, and needed to work his way back into game shape. So there are downsides to it. But when you look at it from the perspective of Mike Jacobs, it's how can we get an asset for a price less than we think the asset is worth, essentially? How, are we, how can we go out and coupon on the international transfer market? And finding guys in the summers is, is such a better way for 
teams to get a really good price for um, incoming transfers. And I think that when you combine that with, yes, we want to kind of evaluate what we have and see what we need, then it's a no-brainer that, that the summer makes the most sense. And, and since we both agreed on that, they're going to do it next week. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we embrace consensus and we're going to be totally proven wrong. Uh, that's that's the way these things go sometimes. Um, they often like to release news on Tuesday mornings, by the way, right after the, sh- the show's come out. I'm not saying those two things are related, uh, but I'm not saying they're not. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks for the question, John. Thanks for the questions, everyone. And if you, if you want more perspective, too, on Nashville SC's roster build, uh, again, the terrific interview last week between Tim and Tom Bogert of MLSsoccer.com, who is uh, the preeminent expert about what's going on around around the league, I think it's safe to say, besides you, of course, Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he is really on top of things and has some unique outside perspective um, from, from outside of the Nashville market about what Mike Jacobs and the club are doing. All right, quickly outside in, we'll go back to the U.S. men's national team. Quickly visit the scenarios it'll take for the United States to clinch a World Cup spot. I double and triple checked my math. May have missed one or two scenarios here. But essentially, all you have to do to clinch a top three spot is to beat Panama at home. You can lose in Mexico. You can lose in Costa Rica. And unless you lose both of those and Costa Rica is perfect in its other two matches too, you're not getting past you're a top three team if you beat Panama. Also, a five-point window gets the job done. Or a four-point window if you draw against Panama and keep them from getting the maximum points. That's top three. To clinch the fourth spot, which would be a, uh, a, a international playoff to get in, all you got to do, beat Costa Rica on the road. There are other combinations too, but that's the simplest. Uh, Costa Rica is the team in fifth that would threaten to pass uh, you can lose the other two matches to Mexico away and Panama at home in that case. So, basically, beat Panama at home, you're feeling really good, even if you lose at the Azteca, even if you struggle to take all three in Costa Rica. But, tough trips loom. You still have to go to Costa Rica, historically difficult. The Azteca, I don't need to tell you how tough that is. Panama, a scrappy upstart that beat the U.S. down in Panama, is visiting, and obviously has everything to play for. Is there any reason to be worried, or am I just scarred from four years ago? Uh, there are no easy answers when this comes around, because <laughs> I am also scarred. So uh, you really, from a, from a logical, uh, cognitive perspective, no, you shouldn't be worried. Um, results against Panama and Costa Rica, or wins against either of them, basically seals up, uh, definitely seals up a top four spot, probably seals up a top three spot. Not a ton to worry about. The thing to do, though, I think, is to go out and and begin the window with a win at Azteca and really oh. set, really set the tone yeah. there, and then then it, it all feels like it's basically curtains at that point. But yeah, I, yes, I'm still gonna worry until it's written in ink. But um, yeah, from a logical perspective, there isn't a ton to worry about. This isn't you know your slightly older brothers Costa Rica, as we've talked about regularly on this podcast, because of Randall Leal's struggles with them because of my forgetting that they're playing in Costa Rica against the United States, not in the United States, but that's okay. Um, but, but yeah, th- this is a Costa Rica team that is not up to its historical standard. And Panama is at its, at its historical apex, basically. They made the World Cup for the first time ever four years ago. Um, they are basically the same team, but a little bit older. Anibal Godoy is now, what, 32, 33 years old. But those are still guys who are young enough to, to you know still have an impact. But... When you look at the United States, which is the fourth youngest national team in the world right now in terms of who has actually been on squads for qualifiers, 
that's that's incredible. This is a, a U.S. team that is on the way up as well, but it's coming from a much higher point, obviously. So you have to have a little bit of faith that the, the project is working out right, that a talent ultimately wins out. If, if Weston McKennie and Tyler Adams are both healthy and um, Adams does not get a yellow card in either of the first two games, there's not a ton to worry about from a talent perspective. It's just a matter of getting it done. Anibal Godoy turns 32 on Thursday. Happy early happy, birthday. Happy birthday, Anibal. Or maybe exact Feliz. birthday if you're listening. Yes, exactly. Feliz cumpleaños and go score a goal against not the U.S. Uh, this time, <laughs> unlike last time in, in late March. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll get into the, the final whistle now of content recommendations. Tim, what have you been paying attention to? I This was brought to my attention. It's, it's a big Tim shouts out scuffed this week, but this was brought to my attention by scuffed, which is Kaiser, the greatest footballer never to play football, which is a documentary that you can rent for 99 US cents on Amazon Prime. I do not know where else you can watch it because that is where I watched it. It is about a player named Carlos Kaiser. And I use a term player loosely because this is a guy who would, was signed by the biggest clubs throughout his native Brazil and always would fake injuries, but get in really tight with the top players and the managers at these clubs, the sporting directors at these clubs. And was just such a popular guy. He kind of had like a, a Maradona-esque nightlife to him, but never played a single game. If you look up his Wikipedia page, it, it, he has like 15 clubs there that he was with for like several years with zero appearances <laughs> for every single one of them. It's an incredible story. Um, the Guardian did a, a nice story that was kind of about the documentary, but about the story as well. And it is, it's unbelievable. It is, you know, I'm practically speechless, even after having watched it. It's an incredible story. This sounds amazing. The only professional sports comparison I can immediately make to something like that would be like a Jim Sorgi, like Peyton Manning's backup quarterback in Indianapolis, who was paid for years on a professional salary and never played but he actually but, it, but even, it's, even it's different than this dude bit. who's who's the the big offseason signing yeah and then just feigns injury becomes friends with the, the trainers on the sidelines and no, nobody wants him to leave because everybody likes him it's an incredible <laughs> incredible story i love it i love it the, so much the first so google to... search about him compares him to the big lebowski yeah um, okay in his in his let me tell you about the dude legend. exactly that, that was my amazing sam elliott impression that's pretty what good. are you what are you watching and, and paying attention to Wes? curling olympic curling i love it i absolutely love curling it is i mean by now it's it's no longer in vogue to to say that i think you know eight years ago everybody was talking about curling john schuster won gold for us four years ago um you know at skip and people are you know it, it's not exactly the the cool hipster thing to like anymore. I'm not a cool hipster though, so I'm gonna still go with it. Uh, and there's a curling bar down the street. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say you better you better be watching that curling over at T Line, buddy. T Line, baby, let's do it. Yep. <laughs> when you're in town, let's go there again. It's fantastic. A great spot in West Nashville. Don't tell anybody about it though. I want them to do well, but I don't want it to get crowded. It's, it's our neighborhood secret. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's 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 just so fun. I, I got into the mixed doubles um, since I married a Canadian. I I kind of sympathize a little with the Canadians too, just not when they're playing the U.S. Don't worry. <laughs> Uh, plus they're better than the u.s usually so a little extra something to cheer for so um yeah it's a blast it's good i don't think i need to sell it to anybody check it out it's it's it, it is truly a game of of inches and um and millimeters and um yeah it's just kind of you know good uh good mindless viewing too while we do things like prep soccer rosters and get ready for the for the season it can be on in the background it's very, it's very good minutes. background for for me yeah. when i when i lived in detroit baseball was like that because you don't have to pay yeah. attention and then you hear the voice do the things that tell you you have to pay attention 
Perfect. Never watched an inning in my life, but <laughs> oh, I love baseball, but I agree with your sentiment completely. For me, NASCAR would, would do that on Sunday afternoon, like turn it down to like volume two, just the drone of the engines kind of knocks you out. But then the rednecks yelling at the end wakes you up. For the end of the race. <laughs> it's great. It's great. So curling and Kaiser, the greatest footballer to never play football. And it was on prime. I'm going to check that out. I'm flying solo here for a little bit at home, so I can just watch sports documentaries all night if I want to. And I might just do that. Uh, Tim, anything you else? Have some good go? re- you better have some good recos in, in the coming weeks. Then I, pressure's on now. I've revealed <laughs> my my secret that I'm going to be around here. So um, I, I got through Succession recently, which was great, but makes you feel like the world's dark and bleak because for the uh, is. unlike unlike what the world naturally makes you feel like. <laughs> hey, at least I like to fake. Well, what an what an upper to end the podcast. I watch I watch shows that make me believe in the world and <laughs> dash my sense of reality sometimes, but whatever uh anything else any other random sports you want to talk about or shows no no that's it just uh, i just want to remind everybody to not only rate review and subscribe but when you are rating there's a little box pops up you can put words in there Mm. if you want to put a review in in with that rating uh do it and tell us tell us if you want to tweet at us tell us if you want us to read it on air and we'll read it on air if you put if you put an actual review with words on our on our itunes uh rating review area I haven't looked in a long time. Last time I checked, we had like 33 five stars and like one one star. So if you're the yeah, one star person. My ex-wife. Uh, figured. Yeah, brutal. Um, yeah, give us a give us a rating. Give us a review. Follow us on Twitter at West Bowling TN at Club Country USA. And we're going to be around for more Hot Tim Winter. The thaw is coming. The season is almost <laughs> here. Lots to discuss. Thanks to John Champion. Thanks to ESPN for the clip we played. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music, 440 Sports Network for giving us microphones. And thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.